you have your Bible, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25 this morning as our our main text and also going to be looking in Isaiah chapter 7. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 1, you can kind of put a bookmark there. Then also if you want to, you can go to Isaiah chapter 7, put a bookmark there. Or if you're like a lot of people now and you have a smartphone, just use the app and get where you need to go, okay? Uh, Matthew chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 7. Well, we're going to be spending these, uh, these three weeks, last week, this week, and next week, looking at the birth of Jesus through the eyes of Matthew. Now, if you're unfamiliar with uh, the biblical account of the birth of Christ, typically we read about his birth in the book of Luke, particularly chapter 2. Uh, that is where we have the most detailed account of how Jesus was born. But Matthew gives us another picture and some other details that we don't see in Luke. And so we've been spending last week, this week, and next week looking at the birth of Christ through the eyes of Matthew. And you'll notice something strikingly different. If you read Luke chapter 2, you're going to get the account of Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem because of the census. You're going to get the account of them uh, trying to find a place of lodging in the inn and being turned away and putting in a, uh, being put in a, a stable. You're going to see the detail of Jesus being born in a manger. You're going to get shepherds and angels and the whole regular thinking of the birth of Christ. All the details are in Luke chapter 2. We're going to read Matthew chapter 1 in just a moment, and the the actual birth all takes place in one verse, the very last verse of Matthew chapter 1. There's no angels, there's no shepherds, there's no mention of an inn whatsoever, there's just a declaration that Jesus has been born, and that's it. Instead, we have a, a little bit more of an insight into a prophecy Matthew wants to focus on the Old Testament prophecy that Emmanuel, God with us, is arrived. Not only that he's arrived, but that he's born of a very unusual means, and he quotes a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7 that we're going to look into this morning. So let's begin by reading Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 together. It says, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. Just to clear up some confusion here in verse 19, Mary and Joseph are not married, but a biblical engagement held the same legal responsibilities as a marriage. So once you were engaged, you were legally married with everything except for the physical consummation. So the only way you could break off an engagement was by filing for divorce. And in this particular case, if the woman happens to be pregnant or have been unfaithful, the penalty for her unfaithfulness in this engagement is death. And so Joseph, being a righteous man, wants to break off the engagement, wants to file for divorce, but doesn't want harm to come to Mary and decides to do it secretly. So she will not be arrested, tried, and executed. Let's continue in verse 20. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, 
See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Do you see here in verses 24 and 25 how quick the birth takes place? And she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. That's all of Luke chapter 2 summed up in two short sentences. Instead, Matthew wants to focus on this prophecy. Matthew wants to draw our attention to the fact that, that though Mary and Joseph were engaged, they had not physically been together, so it was impossible for her to have a child, and yet here she was, pregnant. A miracle has taken place that God has used Mary to conceive without the help of any human man. And this is a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7. That's the quote that Matthew gives us in Isaiah 7 verse 14. It says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. I want to look at this prophecy this morning because when we understand the context of this prophecy, I think it makes the Christmas story and the message of Emmanuel come to life. Now, a few things we want to clear up. One is the prophecy says his name will be Emmanuel. Nowhere in all of the New Testament do we see Jesus ever referred to as his name being Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1, he is the Emmanuel, and that literally means God with us. So he is called God with us. This is a declaration that Jesus is God present here on earth. If anyone tries to convince you that Jesus is not part of the Godhead Trinity, that Jesus himself is not God, you can quote Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew chapter 1 and remind them that the name Emmanuel literally means God with us. That is the title that Jesus has. It may not be his name, his name is Jesus, but his title, who he is, his character is God in our presence. The second bit of confusion is over the spelling of Emmanuel, and this doesn't have any theological significance, but even putting this together, someone asked me, is that Emmanuel with an I or Emmanuel with an E? And quite honestly, I didn't know what the right answer was, other than the translation of Scripture I'm using uses Emmanuel with an I. So let me help clear stuff up. If you walked in this morning through our our main entrance doors downstairs, you saw painted on our our windows, Emmanuel, God with us. Beautifully done by by Adam Jones. We're very thankful that he would decorate that for us. But it says Emmanuel, E-M-M-A-N-U-E-L, instead of I. And you're thinking, is it E or is it I, and what's the difference? Let me go ahead and help you out. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Emmanuel with an I is actually the the Hebrew name. If you take the Hebrew word Emmanuel, which literally means God with us, if you take that in, we call it transliterate. It's not translate, but you just literally take the word Emmanuel written in Hebrew characters and write it out in English letters, you use an I. So this is the, the Hebrew transliteration, the word Emmanuel with an I. But somewhere along the line, us English people complicated things because that's what we do. And we decided it sounds better and looks better with an E. 
And so for centuries, we have been spelling it in many different languages, including English, with an E, which is perfectly fine and perfectly acceptable. So it does not matter whether you spell it with an E or spell it with an I, and it bears no theological significance one way or another. That's just because some of you are scratching your head and going, the door says E and the screen says I. Get it straight, Pastor. Now you know which is which, okay? I want to look at this prophecy in detail, this Emmanuel, God with us. What is happening in Isaiah chapter 7? What is going on to to have this prophecy come to light? Well, for starters, I want you to understand that at no point in Isaiah chapter 7 does it say the Messiah is coming to redeem the world and his name shall be called Emmanuel. There is no direct reference to the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 7. Instead, there is a tie from Matthew 1 to this chapter. So if you're looking through, I think a lot of times we try to dig through the Old Testament and say, okay, here's the prophecy, and this is where it declaration, it says, Emmanuel means the Messiah. Instead, we see that it certainly does mean that, but we have to know the full context. In Isaiah chapter 7, it's really the story of Old Testament Israel. And Israel was a united nation for For the duration of three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, one nation under one king. But after Solomon uh, dies, his kingdom is broken up into two separate nations. The northern kingdom of Israel, and in Isaiah 7 it's referred to as Ephraim, one of the tribes. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's important to note that the kingdom to the north, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Ephraim up north, has all wicked kings. Every king that ever rules over that northern nation is a horribly wicked individual, rebels against God, and leads the people of their nation into idolatry. They do not have one faithful king. The nation of Judah, well, they're a little bit of a mixed bag. There are some kings of Judah who are very faithful to God. And there are some kings of Judah who are just as wicked as the kings to the north. In Isaiah chapter 7, we speak of a specific king of Judah named Ahaz. And Ahaz, he was an exceedingly wicked king. Evil if there ever was evil. He closed the temple. He barred the doors shut so nobody could worship God. And he erected idols all throughout the, the nation of Judah to false gods. His goal was to get away from this one God worship and move to this this polytheistic worship of many gods religion. And so he is a very, very wicked king. In Isaiah 7, it's before he has a chance to, to act on all his wickedness, but his heart, you know, is already bent towards wickedness. He may not have acted on this yet, but if you read Isaiah 8 and 9 and 10 and 11, you're going to see the wickedness of Ahaz. And in Isaiah chapter 7, Ahaz is really afraid. We find him shaking in his boots because the northern kingdom of Israel, called Ephraim, and another nation called Syria have combined forces and have pledged to overtake the nation of Judah. And just to be honest with you, the nation of Judah is too weak to defend itself, and Ahaz is afraid. In Isaiah chapter 7, we find Ahaz crying out in fear. And so God sends Isaiah, the prophet, and his son to Ahaz to assure him that the attack will not be successful. 
So Isaiah is coming proclaiming good news. Ahaz, relax. Okay, God is going to make sure your nation survives. And so we we find in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 4, Isaiah says, Say to him, calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because these... Because of these two smoldering sticks. This is the Hebrew way of saying they're nothing but a bunch of people blowing smoke. Okay? That's literally what he's saying here. They may see smoke smoldering on these two nations, but they're not going to be successful. Now, if God himself comes to you and gives you the assurance that you will be safe, would you trust him or would you reject him? Well, I think if God spoke to me directly, it'd be a lot easier to trust him. But, but maybe you're like me. Maybe you like to have some concrete evidence that it's God actually doing the speaking. Have you ever prayed, God, what do you want for my life? And you hear something, or you think something. And then you have the, God spoke to me. And a little bit of time goes by and you go, or maybe that was me speaking to myself. <laughs> or, or maybe that was just what I want or what I desire. I asked God to speak to me. I wanted a word from God, but how do I know whether it's true or not? How do I know whether it's really God or whether it's me just making it up? Here the prophet says, don't be afraid. He wants to make it very clear that Judah and Ahaz are safe. He goes on to make it even clearer regarding the plans to overthrow Judah. In case there was any confusion to King Ahaz, in verse 7, this is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. And then God makes Ahaz a very interesting offer. He understands that we as frail humans sometimes like to know for sure whether God is speaking or not. And so in verse 10 and 11, then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Basically, God says, ask for anything so that I can prove that this is me speaking to you. But you know how many times I've wanted God to speak that clearly to me? Lord, would you just show me what you want me to do and then prove it to me? Here is God saying, not only am I telling you, but I'm giving you every last detail that you could possibly want to know. And if you want something miraculous, ask for anything. Anything as low as Sheol, so that's as low in the ground as you can get, or as high as heaven. Literally, God is saying, test me. Let me prove myself to you. How cool would that be? I've often thought, what would I ask God to do if he offered this to me? You know, you, you may be like Gideon in, in the Bible and be like, okay, I'm going to take a fleece and set it out and make the ground wet and stay dry. Or, or you may try to get some biblical proof. But you know what I'd really like to do? I'd really like God to give me some supernatural power. You know, okay, God, if that's really you, make me like Superman. I want to fly. You know, if, if I can fly, God, then I'll know it's you. Right? Or, or, or maybe I'd, I'd be, okay, God, I'm, I'm going to test you in this. If it's really you, leave a million dollars on my front porch in unmarked bills that can't be traded, just purely mine, already paid taxes on it. Right? God, this is what I want you to do to prove yourself to me. Literally, God is saying, ask for anything. If you ask it, watch it happen, and I'll do it. Ahaz, though, doesn't want to ask God for a sign, and he responds in verse 12, I will not ask, and I will not test the Lord. This sounds pretty noble, right? Don't test the Lord your God, right? Isn't that what what we hear and what we read? But let's consider other places that God has offered to be tested. 
He has several places in Scripture. The most notably is in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. God says, test me with your finances. See if you don't give to me what I've asked you to give. See if I won't bless you. And he says, literally, test me in this. Try it out and see if I won't bless you because of your faithfulness. God, from time to time, asks us to test him. Ahaz isn't being noble at all. As a matter of fact, Ahaz, in his wicked heart, doesn't want a sign from God. Because if he sees a sign from God, he's obligated to obey. If you look at God and he says, test me, and God proves himself, don't you feel a little obligated to do what God says? Once he has revealed himself to you, don't you feel a little bit of pressure then to listen to what the Lord says in your life? Ahaz doesn't want to be obedient, and so he doesn't want this sign. He says, I will not ask, and I will not test the Lord. The truth is, Ahaz has his own plans. What we find is eventually Ahaz makes a pact and a covenant with uh, uh, the empire of Assyria, different from the nation that's attacking him, Syria. This is Assyria. He goes and he he makes this pact with this large empire and says, if you'll protect me, then, then I'll give you taxes and pay some benefits. And he becomes very close with the king of Assyria. And in doing so, the king of Assyria certainly does protect him. However, it comes at a cost because it's in Assyria that he learns about idolatry and idols. It's in Assyria that he decides to mimic their religious practices. It's in Assyria that he learns how to be wicked and disobedient with his religion. Ahaz's plan, though, is more sound than God's plan. God, you're saying you'll protect me, but there's a king up there who has an army. I I trust him more than I trust you. I want to go with with my option instead of your option. I think my will is better than your will. You don't have to show me a sign. The king of Assyria has already shown me an army. God sees Ahaz's heart, and he... He calls him out on it in verse 13. Isaiah said, Listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of God? Ahaz has already tried the patience of his nation, led them wickedly, and now he is also trying the patience of God. He won't even listen to God's clear reason. And God decides to give him a sign anyway. And here's where the prophecy comes in. So this is the context of the sign that God is giving, not just to Ahaz, but eventually to us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. The prophecy is, I'm going to prove myself to you when a virgin becomes pregnant, and he gives birth to, she gives birth to God himself in the flesh. This must have really confused Ahaz. This is an impossibility. If you've grown up in church, you've grown up being taught about the virgin birth of Christ. If you've grown up in church, you've heard that Mary and Joseph had never been together, and and you know all the miracle behind it, but, but if you remove yourself from that situation, can we just honestly state that it is impossible for a woman to get pregnant on her own? Is that a safe and fair statement? It cannot be done. Oh, I know science is trying to manipulate and do things, but guess what? Even still, if they ever figure out a way to do it without a husband, without a man, 
Even still, it takes outside intervention. A woman in and of herself cannot get pregnant on her own. Now, parents, I'll let you deal with that when you get home, okay? But for now, we understand it takes a mom and a dad. It's impossible. And Ahaz goes, if that's your sign, I know you're not there for me, God, because that is an impossibility. So what exactly is God prophesying here? Was there actually a virgin birth in the Old Testament? Was there a woman who conceived in the Old Testament? I don't think that God here in the the near prophecy is teaching that there is a, a physical virgin birth. Instead, God is prophesying, Isaiah is prophesying on God's behalf that Emmanuel, God with us, is with Ahaz. But what he's saying is, you will have me on your side. I will be present with you. Not only that, it's going to come from something that is not of human origin. This is not something that can come from a person. This has to come from God. If a woman were to get pregnant on her own, it would have taken the intervention of God. God is saying, I'm with you. And it's not anything that man can do for you. It's only coming from me. There was a a near prophecy for Ahaz specifically. There is a a specific prophecy for Isaiah chapter 7 that is is really important for us to know in Matthew chapter 1. There is a promise and there is a sign. Let me ask you, what is more important, the promise or the sign? Let, Let me put it in maybe some modern terms that maybe you can understand a little better. If I promised to give you $100, okay, I'm not. Okay? But if I promise to give you $100, my promise is to give you that money. We have a contract written up and I sign my name at the bottom of that contract. Which is more important, my signature or the $100? Which would you rather have? I think you'd rather have the $100, wouldn't you? Which is more important, the promise or the sign? The promise, right? The, the, the sign is, is pointing to the promise. So we need to focus less on the sign and more on the promise of God. The promise is what is important. The sign merely points to the promise. So for the near prophecy, let's look at this promise. The promise is that God is with Ahaz. That is what is pledged and what is promised. God will be with you. Emmanuel means God with us. Ahaz, regardless of your thoughts and your life, I want you to know I am with you. God himself is going to protect the nation of Judah from being destroyed. That is the promise. Notice that the promise has no stipulations. It doesn't say if you, Ahaz, are obedient. Because Ahaz wouldn't be obedient. It doesn't say if the nation of Judah will be obedient, because the nation of Judah wouldn't be obedient. It doesn't say if you meet these certain conditions and stipulations, because all of it rests on God's promise, not on our obedience or faithfulness. Did God know of Ahaz's wickedness? Absolutely. Did God know that he was a a horribly sinful person? Of course he did. But the prophecy was not based on Ahaz or Judah. It was based on God. God promised his presence to Ahaz, even though Ahaz was a wicked and sinful man. This, this is what we call grace. God gives us himself, even when we don't deserve it. Even when we are not obedient, God offers us a way of salvation. 
This near prophecy to Ahaz was, regardless of what you've done or what's in your heart, I am promising you that I will be with you. I am with the nation of Judah. My presence is here. Emmanuel, God with us. The near prophecy was helping us to understand that God's presence is not based on our faithfulness. But God is present with us because He loves and cares for His people. So how does that relate to the distant prophecy, the one we find in Matthew chapter 1? How does this tie into Emmanuel in the New Testament? I think the promise and the principle is the same. You see, in the distant prophecy, what we find in Matthew chapter 1, the promise is the same. The sign is is more real. There is an actual woman who becomes pregnant through the Holy Spirit and gives birth to a person, Jesus Christ. But why did he come? Remember the promise. He came so that God would be with us. Because we never read in the New Testament that God is with us if we're obedient. Because we won't be obedient. We're never promised that, that God will be with us if we come to church. Because we're not always going to come to church. It doesn't say God will be with us if we attend Sunday school or go on a mission trip or, or go to youth camp. It doesn't say God will be with us if we share our faith. It doesn't say God will be with us if we follow these stipulations. The promise is that God is with humanity regardless of how we have lived in the past. We find that regardless of our rebellion, God is with us to offer salvation. The promise of Emmanuel is a reminder. It is not contingent on your current life. The promise of salvation does not mean you have to be perfect to receive it. It means the exact opposite. When Emmanuel comes, God with us, he comes at the time that we are most rebellious. He comes at the time that like Ahaz, our hearts are bent against him and we're running away. And the promise of salvation does not come because we're faithful. It comes because we're unfaithful and we need the salvation. Paul fleshes this out a little bit more in Romans chapter 5 where he shares very clearly God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the moment of our rebellion, in the moment of our wickedness, even though we wanted nothing to do with a relationship with God, Jesus Christ was born. Emmanuel, God with us. This morning, I don't know what your your past sin is, I don't know what your present sin is, and I can't even predict what your sins will be tomorrow, but I know this. Regardless of your rebellion, regardless of how you've lived, God is with you, and He offers salvation. Much like King Ahaz, many people reject that offer. Many people see God with us in their presence. And much like Ahaz, we we still run and we still rebel. We never receive that salvation. Ahaz had a son. His name was Hezekiah. Probably the one good thing Ahaz did in his entire life was have a son, Hezekiah. Because Hezekiah undid everything that his father had done. Hezekiah realized that God is with him. And if God is with him, he offers salvation. 
And so he opens the doors of the temple and destroys the false idols. He repents and he comes into a right relationship with God. This morning, as we think of the prophecy, God with us, we can experience the presence of God without experiencing his salvation. But the promise is that from God himself, his presence is among you. And if we would repent and turn, we have that free gift of salvation. This morning, as we think of that word, Emmanuel, God with us, we're reminded that it is God with all of us. God with us in our sin. God with us in our salvation. God with us offering a way to have a right relationship if we simply turn, repent, and believe. This morning, as we come to our invitation, I invite you to to close your eyes and pray with me. Father, I thank you I thank you that God is in our presence. I thank you that through the person of Jesus Christ, we have that Emmanuel prophesied to Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7. Lord, we understand very clearly that we are wicked and rebellious, that we don't deserve your salvation. And yet, just as in Ahaz's wickedness, you promise your presence in our own life, regardless of how far we run, Your promise of salvation is there. Lord, let us understand that there is no sin, no wickedness, no evil we can commit that you will not forgive. And you sent your son, Jesus, Emmanuel, to this earth, not only to live a perfect life, but to die on a cross for our sins. Lord, as we think of Emmanuel, God with us this morning, let us introspectively look at our own hearts Confess our sins to you. Lord, make us more like Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, and make us less like Ahaz in his sinfulness and rebelliousness. Lord, we pray this morning that you would forgive us, that you would send your presence to convict us, and that we would experience Emmanuel, God, with us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.